Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended, nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including, but not limited to, crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hey everybody, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. I'm Ken, and I'm joined as usual by my colleague Gabe in New York. Hi Gabe. Thanks, Ken. Excited to be here as always. We're also joined by our colleague, Lucy Slee, software engineer for the Indices Department. Hi, Lucy. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Really excited for this. Yeah. And the reason why we have you here, Lucy, is because um, this is uh, another episode in a sort of like a loose, intermittent series or plan where we try to surface the talent we have within uh, CF Benchmarks in order to shine a light on how we meet those standards as a regulated benchmark administrator. So we decided to have Lucy in here because we think she's a particularly talented software engineer and she works in indices in a crypto company, which is surely an uncommon thing to, to happen um, out there in, in, in the financial world. So um, that's what we're going to talk about today. So Lucy, what sort of indices have you worked on recently that you can sort of like tell us a little bit about? My recent indices, so I've worked on the Rolling Futures Index Series. So originally that was the Bitcoin Rolling Futures Index Series. And now we've just launched our Ethereum version of that. And my current project is on the Bitcoin interest rate curve, which we've shortened to Burke because we don't like to say long words. And these are, you know, obviously the Burke is like a, a unique yield curve for the Bitcoin lending and borrowing market, which is, um, you know, a benchmark of that is obviously unique in itself, and that's privacy. And additionally, for the rolling futures, um, a future strategy based on regulated CME uh, Bitcoin futures, so an index based on that, correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think these are two really good indices to highlight how we're trying to apply quite traditional finance concepts to the cryptocurrency market, um, which is also, you know, why I chose to work on these indices and why I've really enjoyed working on them. Yeah. I mean, to me, obviously, you know, I'm very familiar with them, but on the other hand, I still marvel about how complicated they are. So as a software engineer, essentially creating an index for these highly abstruse markets 
where on earth do you start? Let's talk, let's talk about the rolling futures uh, indices, perhaps, as an example. Yeah, so the rolling futures index, uh, I kind of, well, I joke to my colleagues in the index team, is basically my baby that's now evolved into a toddler. It's a very strange baby. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very strange baby. It's the first index that I worked on as the lead developer for, and it was the first index that we had where we had our normal data dependencies that you have with indices, which is trade data or order book data. Which we on, for example, the BRR, we get that from a lot of about five or six different exchanges. The trade data for that. The CME, CF, Bitcoin reference yes. rate, that is, yeah. With the rolling futures index, aside from the trade data that you're getting from CME, so for the futures contracts that, you're, that will be trading through that day, you're also getting assessment price data for that day and also calendar information that we need for when we should and shouldn't be calculating the index, basically. So it was the first index that we built that, number one, had a lot more dependencies on external data and different types of data. And number two, it was the first index for our system that was not within the cryptocurrency 24-7 market, basically. It's in the traditional finance market where weekends we don't calculate and certain holidays we don't calculate. Some interesting problems arose around that because we had to adapt our system to have a concept of calendars, basically, and when to stop or not calculate. And also, obviously, with those additional data dependencies, and I mean, the Burke has that yeah. on a mega scale. Even more so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with all those sources, yeah. So many dependencies. With all of those different data dependencies, you then also, there's more concern about not getting the data you need when you need it. And given that you still need to calculate, what should you do with that, basically? Should you be falling back to data from previous days? Or should you be trying to, you know, delay calculation, trying to get the data? Or should you, yeah, there's, there's lots of different scenarios that basically we need to go over as the engineering team with the product team. In terms of the uh, scope of the challenge, data dependent, from essentially outside sources, rules-based. So obviously these are very programmatic, they're systematic, systematized indices, of course. And these two sort of like indices or index series, if you bring in, of course, the other aspect, of course, that we're thinking about these cryptocurrencies, it may not necessarily apply in all cases for all indices, but then there's the on-chain aspect um, and other parts of the on-chain environment which have an impact on how an index might be composed. And I think you can start to, if you're not already, you can start to sort of cognize the extent of the, of, of the actual challenge. So we actually had um, Thomas, one of our product managers on in a previous episode, who essentially dealt with the methodology, which is equally as complex. So maybe if we sort of like put that aside for the moment, but think about in terms of the architecture, because we have the chief architect of these indices with us today. If you can talk us through in baby steps, what are the actual steps that you go through when you're creating an index like this, like like the CF Rolling CME Bitcoin Futures Index and, and the series in general? Yeah, so as you've mentioned, the methodology there, which is created by the product team, that is crucial for us in basically trying to understand what to do, how to build this index and to understand what this index is trying to achieve. So once we've 
gone through that methodology and probably annoyed product to death with questions about what if this, what if that. Because you also need to factor in that I'm engineering, I'm not finance. So I don't understand as well as they do the product side of this. So I may ask questions like, but from an engineering point of view, I'm asking, but what if we don't get this data? And, you know, a good response may be, well, we've got bigger problems if we don't get this piece of data for that day. And I'm like, okay, fine, but we still need to code for that. So, you know, there's a long dialogue about edge cases, basically, and what we need to think about. So once you've got all of that information, we have internal documents that, again, product build for us, that basically give us an understanding of their expectations of how the product will be used by our clients at the end. So, for example, the structure of the reports that we should produce for our clients as well. And the reason we need all this information up front is because it's going to help us make decisions on how we design the index, basically, and how we structure the data in the index on the output side, such that the reports show the information in the way that they want the information to be shown. So there's lots of different stages that we need to think about. Once we've got all that information, we can actually start breaking it down so that we can implement it into our code, into our system. So on the index side, the way that we will probably look at that is we think about data collection as one point, data storage as another point, the actual calculation steps or steps often and then the output of that data. So what we're going to do with that data once we've actually calculated our index from it, basically. And there'll be many different avenues with what we do with that data. And at each of those steps, actually, you break it down much more into, okay, we've got this type of data structured like this from exchange over here, which is structured differently to this data from this exchange over here. How are we going to bring all of that together and store it in the most efficient way in what we call cache, which is basically just where we store our data? First of all, welcome, Lucy, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I think the listeners are kind of getting a full, well-rounded picture now of our, you know, uh, process and our flagship indices having Gondo, you know, on previously talking about the Burke. And now we've got, uh, then we had Thomas to talk about rolling futures. And these are, you know, more on the product side of the, of the design of how we're going to, you know, construct this this new index. And now we've got, I think, you know, the the boots on the ground. Okay, now we, we've got the idea. How do we implement this framework so it's all kind of clean and automated? We've got all this data that's being collected, it's being stored, and it's it's kind of funneling in and producing this output for our clients, for our licensees to use, you know, an actual real uh, cryptocurrency index. And so. Now, these are, I think they're really good examples that you started with. But one thing that I wanted to ask kind of in regards to these uh, these gremlins, these things that probably pop up when the data doesn't show up, have you encountered any, you know, any major hurdles with just finding good quality data out there? What's the CFB process for getting, you know, like the cleanest reputable data to kind of go into some of these, these indices? Yeah, very good question. So number one, data quality can be an issue yes especially cryptocurrency is obviously quite young we have new coins popping up we have new exchanges popping up and even with the more established ones actually 
the data is not always the easiest to interpret, for example, if you're if you're using a new API, for example, and you've got new documentation. So an API is a way that we fetch data, basically. The documentation is not always the clearest. So there's quite a lot that goes into uh, trying to work out how to set it up. Once you then get that data, actually, the structure that you re- that you receive the data in, again, is not always documented that well. So there's there's, a, there's quite a lot of um, back and forth between us as CF benchmarks and wherever we're getting our data from to really make sure that we understand the structure of this data and make sure that, you know, okay, so that is actually the value field for this or this is, you know, making sure that we understand the data. So, yeah, these APIs are basically like they're plugins, right? Yeah. For you to collect data from a third party that you you need the data from. And what you're saying is sometimes it's just can be a little bit tricky just given the non-standardization of that you see, you know, in all these different APIs and the way they construct their data. And I'm sh- I can only imagine how uh, tough it might be to kind of put this data in like more of a uniform kind of construct. Is that something that y- you tend to see or is that uh, not too big of an issue? No, no, it, 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 is, it is an issue. Um... JSON, for example, is a very uh, well-established, known data structure uh, that you can... A programming language, right? Well, it's like a, a format, we could say. Yeah, like... it's a format of holding your database. It's a bit like a CSV file format, but it's JSON. Even there, you see, for example, data being passed that should be what we call a null field with null which basically means nothing's there but actually it's being passed as a string which is a different data type and then we have to deal with that in our collectors and you know think about okay well that really doesn't mean a string it means a null value but it's being passed wrong basically so we have to deal with that yeah we need to clean the data up basically as soon as we as soon as we retrieve it the other issue that we face sometimes is that sometimes APIs will be updated so that so new versions will come out and you're not always notified of that that far in advance, which means that we recently had that happen and luckily our systems team very quickly got on top of the issue and could move us over to actually using an ethnode to collect the data. And I think, you know, things like that are always going to happen. But I think especially in something like cryptocurrency where it's much newer and, and things are things things are happening much quicker than in traditional finance, for example. In twenty four seven. Yeah. That. So there's a there's a lot going on. So, you know, there's another dimension to this, um, Lucy, and you know, it's obviously really fascinating to hear you talk. I mean, literally shouldn't be a surprise to a lot of people that I don't really get a huge amount of uh, time to chat with you about this kind of thing. And a lot some of what you're actually saying is actually new to me. I'll admit that. Um, but what I what I wanted to sort of point out, the other dimension I would say is that obviously CF Benchmarks is um, the first regulated and still, I guess, the leading regulated benchmark administrator within the digital asset sphere. So with that in mind, there's already a sort of like a filter. In, we're talking about data. We obviously have the benchmark methodologies, which um, are founded on eligibility, the concept of eligibility in terms of the data that we're allowed to actually take in. We have our CF constituent exchanges, which obviously 
um, need to pass certain criteria before they become consumer exchanges, and there are other safeguards as well. So the data that you're getting in has, you know, market integrity almost by default. But are you saying even with that on occasion, because obviously there's all sorts of um, players in this market because, you know, the market is still maturing. There may be some of the most solid players out there, but even with that, do you still have um, some work to do in terms of the standardization of the inputs? Yeah, 100%. So data integrity wise, obviously we're using sources which are of the highest standard, but we still have issues with standardization, like you said, and also, for example, with the Rolling Futures Index, it was the first time that we we were using a new type of collection, basically. So we were collecting the data using a new method, and that was great. It was really interesting to work on as well because it was completely new to me as well, so I learned a lot. But it meant that we were collecting data and some of the data that we were collecting was, for example, spread trade data, whereas at the start of the Rolling Futures Index, we had to... That is not wrong data, obviously. That's that's fine data. That's spread trades occur. That's fine. But we weren't using them in our calculation at that point. So we also need to make sure that we're fil- filtering out the data that we don't need, but we may still be collecting because, you know, the uh, route that we're using to collect it is giving us a whole range of data. Just in terms of the level of complexity to actually handle the conditions that the market represents or the market presents, we're basically trying to operate in a marketplace. Um, financial markets are notoriously complex and quite often chaotic. And if they seem in good order for a long time, they go out of order at regular intervals in big ways. But indices have to sort of handle that in a way, they have to handle that in a systematic rule-based way that doesn't require tweaking as you go. And you need to build that into the code, right? Exactly, yeah. So you, we, we don't create indices that we then have to intervene and do things with if, for example, there's not that much trade data on one particular day because, number one, that's a, a not a very good product, not very robust index at all. And number two, in cryptocurrency, that's probably going to happen because we have periods of time when there's not that much going on in the market for certain coins or for certain particular financial products. So we have very long methodologies, for example, for that exact reason that we talk in detail about the fallback mechanisms that we must use. And we think about all of these scenarios. And I think one good thing to highlight here is that as our products get more complex, these are things that we spend time thinking about. And there's an ongoing discussion between engineering and product about from a product point of view, what's most representative of the market such that, you know, if we don't receive an interest rate data on a certain day, but we we needed it for the Berg, for example, how far back can we realistically go to look for that for, for interest rate data as opposed to from an engineering side, we have this edge case where we need to know what to do in terms of calculation if on a particular day we don't receive some data. So there's an ongoing conversation. So let, let, let's talk about that a little bit, because I know we wanted to highlight this. Um, essentially, our job is multi, multivariate, of course, but you know, in terms of producing indices, which is essentially what you're doing, 
there are two broad pressures or two broad um, aspects that need to guide us. You know, we need to be obliged to be guided by, guided by these. Obviously, there's a regulatory aspect, certain standards we must meet. And then, of course, um, not necessarily disconnected from that is the calculation, the reliability aspect. Basically, maximum uptime is, is another sort of like um, imperative, right? So thinking about minimizing the risk of calculation failure, which is essentially, you know, that sort of underlines um, the reliability aspect. What sort of steps um, do we have in place for actually ensuring that? Because I know that we, want, we wanted to talk about that. So if you can highlight some of those, that'd be brilliant. Yeah. So the example with the rolling futures index and the dependency, like I mentioned earlier, that we have on the settlement price data was at the start was quite a big headache for us because, you know, if you don't get this settlement price data by calculation time, which is we calculate at quarter past four for calculation date time of four o'clock. If we don't have that assessment price data and we expect it, which I'll come back to, then we do have calc failure then. That's because we need the data. We need the assessment price value for that day. We can't use yesterday's assessment price value to calculate the index value today because that doesn't make sense. So, you know, there are certain situations where that there is nothing we can do and we have to do calculation failure. And in that case, we would become aware of that through certain um, alarms that would be triggered and things like that. And then we usually will print the previous day's value because there's not much else you can do if you don't have the data you need. I mean, we can hasten to add that that has, has yet to occur. And, you know, obviously there are sort of like all sorts of contingencies in place to make sure it does. But yeah, sorry. Exactly. Uh, the reason I said about whether or not we expect the settlement price value is because the rolling futures index, like I said, is our first index that on certain days, it runs to a calendar, which means that we won't expect to calculate a value. So if the settlement price data is not received on a certain day, because that happens to be a holiday in the CME calendar, then we don't expect a um, assessment price that day. We don't expect to calculate a value that day. And the index will just print, um, won't print a value for that day. We'll round off this section. I want to sort of like get a, a sort of a sense from you, Lucy. Obviously, each index and each project, if you like, or each series or whatever is different. But just give us a ballpark figure in terms of from inception of the idea that we need such and such product or we need such and such index to when we go live um, with that index. Generally, from your experience, how long has that, that taken? That is the worst question. To, <laughs> that is the worst question to ask me ever. Um, you can't say a ballpark figure for every index because they're so different. I, I, I bet. So, for example, the Burke index, which is the one that we're currently working on, is massive. And it's going to take a while. And actually, there's multiple components to that index, which in themselves are indices. So there's indices that we're inserting into other indices to create the overall Burke index. Yeah, so you can't put a date on that. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, you know, some indices, in a sense, are never finished, right? I mean, I think the CFO would, would potentially be like that. Uh, interesting question, because... Um... Yes, in the way that the methodology will adapt to, as the market changes. 
And as we get more players into the market in general and we have more data to use, for example, uh, I can imagine bits of methodology will be updated. So in that respect, I guess bits of them will never be finished. However, we do have an endpoint for completion of what we call Burke version, whatever. So, yeah, we have an idea. We, we have an endpoint, but we also are aware that as we design and implement this index, we need to be able to adapt bits of it, basically. And that's, that's the other thing. When you're thinking about how to code this index or other indices, you need to think about making each calculation step, which is nicely presented in the methodology, making that as small as you can, such that it can kind of, we, we, we call it encapsulation. So you, you, you can kind of take it out, you can chop and change bits, basically, if you need to. And it's easy to do that, basically, you should be able to move things around where you need to adapt to certain changes that you might have in the methodology. Obviously, if you completely change the methodology, that's a different question altogether. And then for our more, our longer term, our old school indices, if you like, spinning up a new one of them is just configuration changes. So that's that's not a big... That's easy. Yeah, that's that's it. That's easy, yeah. <laughs> that's the easy part. No, I mean, you know, it's obviously really fascinating hearing, you know, how these things are actually engineered literally from, you know, an expert within the field actually doing it right now. It's not going to be something that you hear explained to you every day. As we are, we are in an exciting field. It is a complex field. It is highly technological. There are obviously going to be people listening um, who would be quite interested in it, perhaps um, as a first career, perhaps as a sort of like career development. Is there any advice that you might give to people who are considering doing what you do or something similar to what you do? How would you get, how would, how would they get a start, maybe based on some of your experiences? I'm a big proponent to uh, getting people into the field because I, I love my job. I also think that working in tech is very rewarding, interesting, and there's a lot going on there. And we need more people. So there's lots of different reasons why I'm big on this. And I also know quite a lot of people that this isn't their first career. They're doing a shift over. Um, there was quite an interesting article about that recently. There's a lot, there's a big shift to people changing over to tech because, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. I think my biggest piece of advice is ask questions all the time. When I've done tutoring before to people at the start of a lecture, I've said, please ask questions, even if they seem like really stupid questions. Because I remember being that person that was like, I can't possibly ask that. That's a really stupid question. No, no, I can't say, can't say that. And it's really good thing you say this, uh, Lucy. No, honestly. And now I think I just realised that it's the way to... I don't really care if I look stupid, basically, because I know that I'm learning something. And I think that's much more important. And I think aside from asking questions, it's about the way that you ask the question. If I'm working on something and I'm struggling, for example, I will give myself a time limit to try and work it out myself. And if I can't, I will go and ask someone else or I'll go and talk to someone else about it. And when I approach them, the way that I will ask the question will be, what am I trying to achieve? What do I think is the reason that I can't achieve it right now? Like, what's, what's the issue? And also potentially, what, what have I tried to work around that issue? So I think 
that it, it's one thing to ask questions, which is great, but it's also you really need to think about how you're going to structure those questions because especially when you're in like an actual workplace environment, pe- people are, can get quite busy and a vague question is quite hard to answer sometimes. And also if you get a vague question, you might go down a completely different alleyway to the one that they wanted you to go down. So always try and keep them quite concise if possible. Two more things, actually, um, just just very quickly then, you know, uh, Gabe, please do jump in. So the first aspect, the fact that we're living in and working in a financial environment, to what extent did you have those sort of like underpinnings or background before you actually, uh, you know, before you came here or before you entered software engineering? So I've always worked in financial technology. I've always been quite interested in finance, partly because I'm quite interested in money, but also because I find finance interesting because aside from the, the, the number side of it, which fascinates me because I love numbers, and you see this especially when it comes to uh, tech and finance, is the way that what happens in the news or what's happening in the world, the way that that works, especially with finance as well. I, I, I just find it all really interesting how it all links up. So I've always had an interest in it. So I will read around the subject. I did maths and stats at university. I did some economics with that and some uh, financial mathematics. So yes, I guess I have that background as well. So it helps in other words. Yeah, it definitely helps. You have to be engaged in the market that you're working in. So that was a big thing for me. This is the first job I've had in crypto. And before this, I knew about cryptocurrency, but I didn't fully understand it. And I don't fully understand it now, but I definitely understand it a lot more. That's, don't worry. You're not alone. <laughs> and if you say you don't understand it, I'm completely, yeah, I'm completely I'm lost in shoes. <laughs> I just wanted to uh, kind of summarize one thing that I, I really liked that Lucy was saying, which is to stay kind of like analytically curious is a good way to say summarize it and, and to kind of ask these questions, but also think about how you're constructing the, you know, the way you're approaching your questions and analyzing your questions. I think that's really uh, really interesting. And I just wanted to kind of follow on that, you know, specifically, like, have you come across any examples recently where, you know, you're faced with this far-fetched dilemma and, uh, you know, you, you had to kind of dig yourself out, maybe ask some questions of yourself or ask, ask some questions to some colleagues and, and try and, um, come up with a solution together or by yourself. Uh, that's a very good question. Now my mind's gone blank. Let me think. Has chat GBT been answering your questions recently? Yeah, um, I actually did play around with ChatGPT the other day. What do you think of it? So ChatGPT, okay, number <laughs> one, I'd just like to say to everyone that is thinking about becoming a software developer, ChatGPT is not going to take your job, so don't worry, okay? That's the first thing. <laughs> From what I've heard, I absolutely think it cannot. ChatGPT is, is amazing. It's an amazing tool, and it makes me proud to be in tech because it just shows how quickly things are advancing, and I think it's very impressive. And I think you need to use it as a tool. You can't pretend that it isn't there and pretend like just say, oh, AI, that won't ever go anywhere, blah, blah. It's, it's happening. Like you need, you need to get comfortable with it. You need to get used to it. Use it as a tool. And that's what we can do as software developers. So ChatGPT is very good for simple coding questions, if you like, but you need to know what to ask ChatGPT. And that's where the skill and knowledge comes in. ChatGPT is not going to be able to create a system like the one that we've created at CF Benchmarks. But 
in the fullness of time, it will be able to be used with our system to help speed up testing, for example, to help answer questions that I will have about, I know I can do something in Excel to convert this data from this cell and this cell here to this cell here, but I can't remember how to do it. I can just ask ChatGPT and it can give me the formula. That's what it will be used for. Yeah, like a tool. It's a you know, it's like leveraging your skill set up, uh, you know, from an individual perspective. But you still need to have that professional judgment and experience to kind of know what you you know, being uh, analytically curious. You know, talking about these framing your your questions, knowing how to you know use this AI and these new tools. But now I think there's a lot of exciting stuff. And what you're talking about with technology, it's it's you know, as someone who worked in the traditional finance space. And now is it more in like this fintech, you know, with the crypto side? It's it's definitely, I would say, right, Ken, it's definitely a breath of fresh air. No, absolutely. Absolutely. One thing I would, I, I did want to ask you, um, Lucy, I think it's important, um, and maybe I should have actually brought it up earlier. It cannot escape anyone working in our sphere. You know, it's finance, it's crypto, it's technology, you know, all of those, all of those uh, shibboleths, you want to put it that way. Um, it cannot escape you that, you know, we do not find that many women like yourselves, senior technologists, software engineers, um, working in the same space. So, I mean, I guess I would address that to you and ask you what advice you would give. Obviously, you you know, I know I haven't spoken to you. I know that you're, you know, you something top of your mind quite often. But what advice would you give people like yourselves, a woman who wants to perhaps get involved in this world, how to view it? And of course, perhaps some tips on how to begin to work in it. Yes, I have a lot of opinions on this. I won't go into all of them because we don't have time. But advice for women that want to get in, and I'm only going to talk about it from a female perspective. I know there's other minority groups, but I'm, you know, that's what I can talk about. So that's the experience that I'll talk about. So I think it's not going to change overnight. So you need to be aware that you probably will be the only woman in the meeting quite often, or you will be the only woman in your team. I think it's good to have that conversation early on with your managers or the senior people in the company, but also your team members, because I think a lot of the time these conversations don't get said or had because they're uncomfortable conversations to have, but they're very important because what I think people don't realise, and I didn't realise actually until I became more senior, is that the less representation you see of yourself, the harder and harder it becomes to think, oh, I should be here, basically. And it's, you're not consciously thinking it all the time, but you unconsciously think it and it builds up. So I think having those conversations with people that you're working with every day is really, really helpful. And I think it will also, I found having these conversations with my colleagues is that it opens up a dialogue where we can all feel like we can just be a bit more honest with each other about, well, what do we do and how can we improve it? And like I said, it's not something that's going to happen over time. You know, it is changing that we we do see more women in the industry. We have an issue with retaining women in the industry, which I think, you know, is a separate issue and is also to do with the amount of time that women have basically been able to you know learn whatever they've wanted to learn at school and be been able to participate in these conversations it's not that long since for a lot of places at least you know you haven't had that much independence as a woman so there's also there's lots of different things that we need to bring into it 
I think you need to be aware of the cultural differences as well and language that is used. Because I think often incorrect language is used. People don't mean offence, but sometimes you need to highlight certain languages that are used. One for me is uh, dev days instead of man days when you're estimating work. Yeah, I've actually heard that. So that's probably down to you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it happens sometimes, but then it's corrected. And I think that's really important because I know that everyone I work with does not mean any offence or thinks that I shouldn't be working on something, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that small changes like that in language make a big change to how you feel in terms of being included basically in the conversation yeah so did that answer all your question was there another one no absolutely and you know my my main worry is that um obviously wanted to ask the question but um maybe this is symptomatic of what you've just been saying i was worried that the way i would ask it was um yeah, possibly stupid or offensive. No, but I know that it was the important question to ask. So you see what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's the no one wants to offend and no one wants to be offended, basically. And I'm quite a blunt person, so it takes quite a lot to offend me, <laughs> and I probably offend a lot of people. If you want to get involved in this industry, go for it, but appreciate that there will be situations when you will feel very much othered if you like or the minority and unfortunately as the minority whether or not this is right that's a different argument to have you will need to start having the conversations because otherwise the conversations aren't probably aren't going to happen basically within your team or within your company so Gabe, do you have anything else um as we come to you know start to round this off a little bit any any other points you wanted to sort of uh, ask uh, lucy at all I just want to thank you uh, for, you know, coming on the podcast. It's been, uh, you know, uh, I I feel like it flew by and we've covered, I think, a lot of different topics. Um, Typically, you know, we we, we can be kind of, I think, narrowly focused here on the pod, just focusing on just price action, digital assets and our indices and things like that. But it's refreshing to be, you know, covering these other things that are, uh, you know, so important for our society and to just get someone's take that actually is in the... uh, in the rooms, uh, design or uh, constructing these these indices from the ground up, you know, there's a lot of legwork. Yeah. It's all about the industry as well, you know. Yeah, it's not just the number that gets printed. It's you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff in the background that needs to happen, getting everything to, to flow through and be. Uh, I think you know, as as our uh, as our CEO Sui would say, would operationally silent is the way we want to be as an index provider. So it starts with you know people like like Lucy who are you know senior engineers who really know how to get that operationally silent uh, experience for for our customers and clients yeah we're we're ever so grateful lucy and um i think we should actually well one thing we did mention was that one once we get people onto the podcast we kind of ask them on air whether they're going to come back and no one has, says no because basically you can't so sorry you can't say no you actually have to come back and do this again now and you were saying you don't like public speaking? No, I don't like public speaking, but I've really enjoyed this. So I'll definitely come back. Brilliant. <laughs> no, it's been great to have you. It's been really fascinating. I, as I said before, I actually have learned stuff, which possibly might be a bit worrying for some people, but don't worry uh, because, uh, yeah, I have a better understanding of what goes on within these uh, walls uh, now. So, yeah, all that's left uh, to do, I think, is um, just to say thank you once again, Lucy, and do come back. 
And thanks a lot, Gabe, for your contributions. And we'll see you all again for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. Cheers. <laughs>